Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. The scripture reading today is taken from uh, the book of Luke, chapter 1, verses 39 to 53. At that time... Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. This is God's word. Our junior high kids, you guys can head off to your class. Uh, Pastor Kate is out to, in the hallway to meet you. Good morning. Good morning. It was a professor of media at the uh, University of Toronto in the 1970s. His name was Marshall McLuhan, and he coined a phrase about, uh, he, he was sort of credited in some senses with predicting the internet 30 years before it came. But he had this phrase, uh, uh, this description of what technology would mean. And he said, it, it's the, the medium is the message. And, and by that, he was saying that the message is not just what you're saying, but how it's actually being said. In fact, how it's being said is even more important than the words themselves, that the delivery of the message, the medium of it, what carries it, the tone that it comes with is the message itself. And we can be aware of that in things like body language, you know, how, how words by themselves without, um, it's why email can be so crazy, destructive, and um, not helpful many times because it, it lacks tone or it, it communicates tone maybe unintentionally. It lacks visual sort of connection with, um, with body language, with volume of delivery. And all of that is true even just in terms of the nonverbal um, communication cues. But if you think about even, and we talked about Martin Luther King's impact last week, but if you think about the message that he was sending to the world at that time, he didn't just deliver it in speeches, though his speeches are famous. They marched. And the march itself was the message, right? Because the march was saying something like, he's saying, I'm not alone, right? He was someone of influence, and having, but he was marching together with a whole group of people, and they're saying, well, it's not just me. It's not just one person. There's a whole group of people being oppressed in this country, The march was also saying by its sort of movement, we are not going to be violent, but we are not going away. It was also saying, and it was kind of raising the eyebrows of people all over the world, you have to deal with this. This cannot go away. And that cannot just be, or that was far more than just the words that he spoke, but the medium was the message. 
The reason that matters, the reason I want to just talk about that briefly this morning, and the Guinea team's giving me a hard time, the fact that I'm preaching, you know, and they said, how come we get so many few minutes? I'm like, there's eight of you, there's one of me, and as preachers, you don't say anything in five minutes that you could say in 25, but I'm going to be short, but just to, to set them up. But the, the reason I wanted to talk about this this morning is the Christmas story in this season, and really the gospel, or the, the, the word gospel that we, we claim as Christians is, means good news. And I believe that you know, sometimes at Christmas we can think about, oh, Christmas has become something that people miss the message. And the message is that, you know, Jesus has come into the world. And that is the message. But I've actually thought that in, in just reflecting on my own life, that in many ways, because I have not really paid attention to the medium of the Christmas message, that even me, someone who would say, oh, I know what Christmas is about, is in danger of missing it. Because it's not just about the words on the page and the stories that we know so well, but the medium, the way the story came into the world, the way the message was delivered actually said far more about what the message was itself. And if we miss it, we miss the good news. So it's possible for us, even as people in the church, to sit here at this time of year and go, oh, I know what Christmas is about, but if we're not paying attention to why the stories were written the way they were, what they were trying to communicate, we may miss what the good news is, and that we may miss being able to communicate it to a world that I don't know about you, but the world around me is desperate for good news. It's interesting, right, that when you think about the, the, the stories of the founder of Christianity, of Jesus, what is so unique about the scriptures is we actually have four biographies. Right? There isn't any other faith system in the world that has multiple versions of their founder's kind of life. And the interesting thing is they're different. They don't conflict, but they're different. And Luke actually begins his gospel saying, I know many others have set to write this down. In other words, I know I'm not the first person to write this down. We don't actually know how many other uh, gospel accounts there were of Jesus, but we know these ones got preserved for us, and the ones who wrote it were considered, hey, these were closest to the eyewitnesses or they were eyewitnesses. So Luke's already aware probably of Mark because he uses Mark a lot, but he says, I'm still going to write this down anyway. It's my attempt to, and he was writing it to uh, uh, someone in the Greek culture with seemingly some influence around so that this thing would be circulated. And he said, I've taken it under, my my sort of desire is to write an orderly account for you. And so we had to kind of pay attention, well, why is Luke's account, why does Luke choose to highlight certain things that other gospel writers don't? People say, well, doesn't that mean it's not the same story? It's like, no, but if you and I both went to a party and I asked you, how was the party? You might give me different accounts. They're not conflicting. They're not not true, but they're from your vantage point and the things that for you were most significant to tell me about what happened. And for Luke, he arranges his account in a way to tell us something so significant that maybe he felt like Mark missed or somebody else saying, this has got to be told. And he starts his story with these two birth accounts. First of John the Baptist, was sort of like, you know, filled by the Holy Spirit, was still a human being, born by the way normal human beings are born. And then this other miraculous account of a baby coming, whose name was Jesus, the one where maybe we're very familiar with the Christmas stories about. But they're parallel accounts. They go back and forth almost in the same way. An angel comes to Zechariah, who would be John the Baptist's father, an angel, and says, miraculous baby. You know, him and his wife had been married for, for decades. They had obviously been trying and probably stopped trying to have children. And so this miraculous baby's coming saying, you're going to actually be, be pregnant and have a child. And then an angel is also coming to Mary. Now, what's interesting in the Zechariah account, a good God-fearing Jew who's reading a story about good news would open the pages and say, okay, yes, of course. Here's the angel coming to who? A priest. So it was a holy person, right? Someone close to God. A man, right? Because they were just more significant and more important in those days. And someone from Jerusalem, which was sort of the center of Jewish life 
and faith. And then it tells us a little bit about Zachariah's parents, because in those days, who your parents were kind of meant everything about who you were. You were the son of so-and-so. And so if you came from royal lineage or you came from good stock or your parents had sort of, if they were rabbis or if they were wealthy people or whatever, you inherited that. So your family was so, so we realized, okay, so, so the, the status markers for Zachariah are quite high. Sort of religiously pious, devout, a priest, ministering in Jerusalem, a man from good stock, and this miraculous child is going to come. And then right alongside it, the angel comes again, but this time none of the status markers are there. It's a woman, and then those days, and in fact, we know how radical the account of Jesus begins to be, actually, and if you read especially Luke, Luke highlights time and again how the gospel story lifted up women out of the pit that they were in in that culture. And so, but if you're a woman and you were expected, in Jewish culture, you weren't even expected to be able to learn. You weren't taught. You didn't think you could actually grasp concepts and learn about God. And so one of the Jewish prayers was, you know, thank you, God, that I'm not, you know, I'm not a sinner. I'm not a woman, right? Because just life's not good for me. And so the angel comes to a woman who seems to be an orphan, at least insofar as her parents aren't mentioned. So clearly she came from no stock whatsoever or nothing worth mentioning. She has no, we don't even know who she is. There's no, she clearly is some peasant family. The only identity she has is that she was betrothed to somebody named Joseph who did have some good stock. They talk about him and his parents. But that was the only thing she had going for her. Another miraculous announcement, this time even a little bit crazier. You're going to be with child. I've never been with a man. I know, just trust God, Okay. There's two angelic messengers. So in the, in the status marker sort of category, Zechariah far outweighs Mary. Who's the one who's going to believe? Who's more likely to believe Luke is setting us up? The priest doubts. <laughs> the young peasant woman believes. Right from the beginning. And her belief had, was way crazier. Like, no woman plans to shop for her wedding dress at time and maternity, right? Like, that's just not, it's not what you hope to be. It's not how you hope it's going to hang out. And for Mary, this would probably mean at least the threat of death. Because if you were betrothed to someone and then found pregnant, the guy's going to say, I haven't touched her yet, so she clearly has been unfaithful to me. So probably, at the very least, she would be disowned kicked out of that family and her one chance at life, because if you're a woman, you just hope somebody would marry you, because that would give you sort of um, status, standing in the, in the culture, being able to have children, some kind of um, sort of financial security. There was the, the identity, until Jesus came, there was no such identity as being single, until Jesus revolutionized the way the modern family looks. But before that time, and so she would have risked that, she may have even got stoned to death, and so Zechariah hears this promise. He's a priest. He's close to God. He's in the center of Jerusalem. He's a man. He's a faithful person. Luke already says he's righteous. And he says, well, I don't really, how's that going to happen? My wife's too old. And she says, okay, may it be to me as you have said. <laughs> right away, Luke is telling us something in the way the message is delivered. It's this theme of reversal. Later on in the Gospels, you hear Jesus saying, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. The least likely, the ones that the rest of the culture say, you have no status, you have no significance, you have no standing, you have no importance, are the ones that seem to be lifted up. And the ones that seem like they should believe, that they should have faith, that they should have everything together, are the ones that are the risk of missing out on what God wants to do because of their lack of faith. And Luke tells us this story right from the beginning. And Mary 
gets it. And why? She starts to sing, which is crazy again, right? You're going to have a baby, even though you're a virgin. You might die. She bursts into song. And look at what she, she sings. Um, Tony read a little bit for us. I'm just going to read two verses in particular because it tells us in the, in the way she was singing the song, she knew what was happening. What I just said to you, this reversal, she knew it was happening. Verse 51. Um, you see what all the things that God has done. He has scattered those who are proud. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has sent the rich away empty. But he has lifted up the humble and filled the hungry with good things. Mary gets it. She's like, wait, something's happening here. It is a reversal. It is the seed of some kind of good news that the world has never known. And she understood, She's like, because in that culture, if you were wealthy, if you had importance, if you seemed blessed, that was because God loved you. And you were, therefore, a blessed person by God. But if you were poor, if you were sick, if you were hungry, if you had no social status, that's because God didn't love you or you had sinned or there was something wrong with you. And Mary says, wait a second, how is it possible that someone like me could have something like this happen? She said, wait, the tide is turning. God is doing something totally new. And he's, he's brought down the proud and the rich. And he's lifted up the humble and the hungry. And there's a picture actually of justice going on here because in, in that culture in many ways, and actually we begin to see what Jesus said, the reason there were so many who were humble and hungry was because the rich and the proud and the powerful weren't doing what they were supposed to do with their riches and their power and their position. It was, there was an oppression relationship going on, and, and Mary says, Jesus has, this is now beginning to change. Everything is changing. And, and we know this actually this is the entire ministry of Jesus, right? What was so scandalous about what he did, and she was almost like prophesying, this is what the gospel looks like. It looks different than you think it will. Those who think you're in, those who think you're fine, those who think, sure, God will love me because you're, and basically you have a, a self-righteousness and a pride. Those who think, well, I have riches because God is good to me and this blessed me and it's for me. You will find yourself actually wondering, am I even going to be in? Right? And that's what Jesus is saying to his disciples later on. You know, it's very hard for the rich to enter the kingdom. And they're like, what? If the rich can't get in, who can? <laughs> Where did we get this idea of humility being good and being of sort of low esteem or like allowing yourself to be lifted up by others that, that this is a good thing compared to riches and power and importance? It came from Jesus. He reversed the whole system. Everything began to change. And Mary understood it. And she sings about it. See, Jesus, with his life and ministry, began to redefine what it meant to be blessed by God, what it meant to be loved by him. And it wasn't just a poor is a rich is bad, poor is good. It wasn't that kind of a just sort of yin and yang reversal, upside down kind of thing. He was saying, hey, if you are rich, if you are important, if you do have leverage in this culture, use it in the service of those who don't. What you have been given is not a blessing, it's a trust that if you use it well, one day you will receive blessing, right? What you have in your hands is not great. I'm so glad God has given this to me. It's saying, wait, why has God given this to me? What does he want me to do with it? Because blessing is good, but it's not just blessing, it's a trust. What am I supposed to do with this? How am I supposed to put it in play? And that's why Jesus was constantly going to the poor and the sick and the needy 
and the disenfranchised and the sinners and everybody else who thought they were in was so troubled by what he was doing. But it wasn't just sort of a monetary, uh, it wasn't just about health and wealth. There seemed to be this posture that those who were proud and self-righteous couldn't come close to Jesus and those who had an awareness of their issues and their sin and their need were the ones that knew he was good news. This humility of heart. And Jesus said, that's why he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those that, in a sense, he was saying, look, the poor and the lame and the blind and those who, like in that culture, we were very, they were very aware of the sick because you couldn't walk down the road without any of you that have been in third world countries, you know, the, the ones that are sick and lame and blind and like missing appendages are sent out by their families. They come to the edges of the road to beg because that's the only way they have. And so you cannot hide from that pain in, the, in those cultures. And so they were very aware of that. And Jesus was constantly pointing them and saying, this is what you are like in your heart. There is a sense of need, and those of you that have importance and have wealth and have a self-righteousness and think you've been a good person, you are the ones that you don't actually realize that you are in desperate need of a, of a Savior, because I am the one that actually brings down the proud and the powerful, and I lift up the humble. Which is, means there's two great implications for the church that receives the good news. And if we are people who have said, yes, this is for me, it means that we are constantly meant to ask, how can we go and fight the injustice that still prioritizes the powerful and the rich and the privileged and those born in certain parts of the world and the rest of the world suffers? I said this to you before, but now they, they, they say they're estimated around 27 million people still in, enslaved in the world. 27 million people. These aren't just people who are poor. These are people who are um, thrust into poverty or service at the hands of someone who has the right to do what they want with their lives. 27 million people enslaved, more than ever in history. There is still the power system. Most of the money raised in North America, said you, 94% of it stays in North America, and yet most of the injustice issues in the world, the true injustice issues are happening outside of North America. And so the church, if it embraces the call of Jesus, if this is who Jesus is, who scatters the proud and bring down, brings down the powerful so that the hungry can be filled, so that the humble can be lifted up, then we, as the church of Jesus Christ, need to move in that direction and say, what are we to do to fight injustice. And no, it's not up to us to bring down governments. The scriptures say that God is the one who makes people rise and fall, and that he is the one who is in charge of all authority. But we are meant to go to the ones that, and use whatever power, importance, privilege, wealth we have, and in a sense do what Christ did for us, which is to get low, to get underneath them, and lift them up. It's why the scriptures say, no, he came so low that, um, you know, he, he, he came and was born and was one of us as lowly as possible. Why? To get below us, to lift us up. So if we understand, wow, this is, this is part of the good news because this is how the good news came. Therefore, this is what it means to be people of the good news. But the second implication is this. Watch out. Watch out lest we get to that place where we say, I'm good. I'm fine. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I don't really need to let other people tell me what to do. I don't really, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, God, I've, I'm doing my thing. I'm giving you my 10% or 5% or 1% or whatever it is I need to pay you off so I can keep the rest, you know. I'm doing my thing. I'm fine. Or I'm a good person. I don't need anything. I'm trying to fix myself. 
Jesus is always warning us, saying that's not how you actually receive the good news. You receive the good news empty-handed. You receive the good news open-mouthed. You receive the good news with an empty spirit that says, Lord, I need you every hour I need you. And when we are in that place, as the poor and the humble, that's what we receive. We receive the blessings of God, which means the circumstances in your life, the difficulties that you hate, the things that you're praying would stop or go away, or the people that you're praying would stop and go away that are causing you to feel weak or empty are the invitation of God to receive the goodness of the gospel. The places where we feel most empty, most weak, most troubled, where we walk with a limp, where we struggle to survive, and we think, man, I just when is this season going to be over? It is an invitation because... The scriptures say he is near to those who are brokenhearted. He has come to fill the hungry. And so the first requirement of receiving the good news is to be hungry for it. Which means, hey, many of us were in a good place this Christmas, right? It's why we send teams to Guinea. Not just because we need, these guys needed to go and help them, and you're going to hear about how they were able to, but because they need to be helped. We are people who are impoverished in our spirit and living in this part of the world, and we need to get close to people because only when I get close to people who have nothing do I realize how selfish I am. Only when I get close to people who are needing so much for me that I realize how reluctant I am to sacrifice myself for others. Only when I get close to realize that for those who have nothing, I realize how much I have and I want to keep to myself. It is in those places that begins to expose my real need, my deep need for Jesus. And so that's why we go. And so I want you to uh, watch a video that just gives you a little bit of a picture of what our team went through, and then they're going to come up and just share with you the gospel, the good news of what they experienced and what you were a part of by giving, praying, and sending them uh, to go. I, I just want to bless you. I want to bless you with um, this, a greater uh, uh, love for Jesus and say, Jesus, this is what you do. This is why you came. This is why you're good news to me, that it would just help you worship him more. But secondly, that you would just be drawn in more to his work in the world, not just in this place, but there are pe people that God has put around you who are empty-handed, who, who empty-hearted, who need to, to know his, his love. And so I just want to bless you with an ability to see that. And to they all said, hey, we didn't think we could do anything or we didn't know why we were doing here. Feeling confident is not the requirement. <laughs> Just having open eyes, right? And being willing to say, okay, God, I'll do what you're asking me to do. So I want to bless you with that. Thanks.